I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. We're glad that you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. This week, we start a new sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians. And I love the book of 1 Corinthians for a couple of reasons. And one of the reasons is the inspiration for the title of this sermon series, The Beautiful, Ugly Church. The reason we're calling it that is because 1 Corinthians gives us an up-close and personal look at a local church that is both beautiful and ugly at the same time. Now, the reason that a local church could be both beautiful and ugly is because a local church is made up of people like us, right? People who are both saints and sinners at the same time. We're people who have been bought by the blood of Christ, given new life by the Spirit of God, saved by God's grace. And yet we still find ourselves wrestling with sin, wrestling with pain and suffering and injustice as we look forward to the day when Satan is defeated once and for all. The church and the people who make up the church, we can be both beautiful and ugly at the same time. And I also love 1 Corinthians because of how practical This book is as we look at Corinth, we see a church that is less than perfect, just like every church you ever have or ever will walk into. There are significant problems at this church that Paul addresses in this book. And many of those problems in Corinth still plague churches, even like ours to this very day. But not only can we see reflections of our church as we look at the church in Corinth, I'd suggest that we can even see reflections of our city as we look at the city of Corinth. Commentator Stephen Um uses words like pluralized and influential and cutting edge to describe Corinth. He also says Corinth was an aspirational city. Its citizens were looking to advance on the ladder of upward social mobility, and they did this by aspiring to affluence for the sake of establishing their own honor. The core community and core tradition of the city were those of trade, business, entrepreneurial pragmatism and the pursuit of success. And perhaps no city in the Roman Empire offers so congenial an atmosphere for individual and corporate advancement. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that description of Corinth, words like pluralized, influential, cutting edge, entrepreneurial, I immediately found myself thinking, that sounds a whole lot like Fishers, doesn't it? It sounds a whole lot like Fishers. So we have a church that so often reflects our churches today, and a city that has some things in common with the city that you and I are worshiping in right now. You put that all together, and perhaps it would be a good idea for us as followers of Jesus to listen to what Paul has to say to these Christians a long time ago. To sum it up, another commentator named Gordon Fee writes, The cosmopolitan character of the city and church, the strident individualism that emerges in so many of their behavioral errors, the arrogance that attends their understanding of spirituality, the accommodation of the gospel to the surrounding culture in so many ways, these and many other features of the Corinthian church are but mirrors held up before the church today. It would be good for us to look in those mirrors, even if we don't always like what we see. So let's start reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. You're welcome to follow along in the Bibles that we provide. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home with you when you leave. 
But before we do any reading, I'd like to pray together as a church. And I think we can all agree that this week in America has been rough, hasn't it? It's been a difficult week. We go back even a few weeks before this week, and we see a lot of people in our country that are suffering. A lot of people in our country that are hurting. We go back to the shooting in Orlando, and we see a lot of the gay community hurting and weeping and suffering. We see a lot in the African-American community weeping and hurting and suffering. We see a lot of people in the law enforcement community weeping, hurting, and suffering. So I pray this morning as we hear the truth of God's word, as we pray, and even as we leave here and pray on our own, I pray that we'd be praying for those people, that we would weep with those people, that we would mourn with those who are mourning, regardless of who they are and regardless of why they're mourning. I pray that we as followers of Jesus would actually work towards justice, that we would promote equality within our country, that we would treat every single person as created in God's image. But I also pray that we would be sober minded about the fact that no government program, no legislative changes, none of that stuff's going to bring about utopia or heaven or paradise. Only God can bring those things about. So as we live in a world that is suffering and hurting and weeping, I also pray that we would keep in mind that there is a better kingdom coming, a kingdom that we don't usher in, a kingdom that only God ushers in. And I pray that as we see a suffering world, we would long for that kingdom that much more. So let's pray this morning as we get started. Father, thank you for this opportunity to worship together, to open your word especially after a week like this. There is chaos in our world and the political realm and racial divisions and just about every single area you can think of. There is hurt and division. So, Father, I pray that your church would stick out as a light in that community and in our society as a place where there really is unity, where there really is love, where there really is compassion that only you can bring about in our hearts and in our minds. Father, be with us this morning as we listen to your word. Give us open hearts and open eyes and open minds. Father, I pray that you'd be at work within us this morning, however you see fit. Father, again, I pray that we would weep with those who weep. And at times when we don't feel like there's anything else we can do, we would keep in mind that, like the song we just sang, we simply pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Thank you for your son's death on the cross his resurrection, his ascension, and we look forward to his return. We love you. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, before we read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let's learn a little bit more about the context of this letter. So as we mentioned, Corinth, the city, was a large and diverse and influential place. Many of the people living in Corinth may have been former slaves who were trying to make their way in the world. The city of Corinth was predominantly non-Jewish, mostly Greek people. Corinth was a commercial hub for the entire Roman Empire. Lots of business, lots of trade, money, opportunity, food, wine. Those things flowed freely in Corinth. It was the quintessential Greek city. Corinth was the site of the Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympics. You put it all together, and Corinth was a city with no shortage of opportunity, no shortage of things to do. 
Thus, many people would come to Corinth from smaller towns to try and make it big, to try and chase their dreams and make a name for themselves. But a city like this, with all that opportunity, that also is a city of a lot of temptation, a lot of sin and a lot of vice that we see in this book. From what we read in Acts chapter 18, Paul's first trip to Corinth was probably around 51 A.D., about 20 years after Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and ascended. We believe that Paul wrote a letter to these Corinthians shortly after leaving, maybe around 52 or 53 A.D., and he then wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians, around 55 A.D. Now, Paul's writing this letter because he's heard about some problems in the church that had to be addressed. Paul loved the people in Corinth like his own children. In chapter 4, he describes himself as their spiritual father. In other words, he loved them too much to sit back and simply watch as they destroy themselves with sin running amok. However, addressing problems like these, controversial, sensitive issues, this is not going to be easy for Paul to do. I read a blog post this past week of a man lamenting and grieving the fact that the priest from his church was having to leave unexpectedly. And as he recalled all the ministry that priest had done, one of the things he said was how he was reminded of the priest's first words when that priest started at the church. And the priest said to him, I'm not here to be your friend. I'm here to be your priest. He remembered at the time it sounded a little bit harsh, a little bit rude, a little bit rough around the edges. But over time, as he was ministered to by this priest, priest rather, he began to love this priest and value this priest's ministry and this priest's shepherding. We see Paul kind of taking the same role here. He's not writing to the Corinthians to be their friend. He's writing to them to be their shepherd, to be their father. So let's read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus And in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the beginning of the letter doesn't sound too bad, does it? In fact, the letter sounds downright encouraging. Paul describes these people as sanctified saints. He's thankful to God for them. They're enriched in all speech and all knowledge. They're not lacking any spiritual gift. They are gifted people. They've been called into fellowship with Jesus Christ himself out of God's grace. Now, if you're the Corinthians and you read those first few words, you're probably feeling good, right? That's high praise. Those are a lot of compliments. God clearly has blessed them in a number of ways, right? Well, sure, he has. Of course he has. 
But that doesn't mean that they're without issues. We start to see that in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, Chloe, such a tattletale, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptize anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. Remember that phrase, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So the first problem that Paul identifies in the letter is the problem of division. Paul is writing to a church that is not united. Factions have formed in this church based on identification with certain human teachers. Some people identify with Paul, some with Apollos, some with Cephas. And then you have that one guy who says, well, I follow Christ. I don't know about you guys, but I follow Christ. Don't you love that guy? He's annoying. Now, for Paul, these factions, this division, that is reason for significant alarm. But it's also heartbreaking. And you can see that in the emotion of his words. Was I crucified for you? Was, were you baptized in my name? Of course not. You know this. You were baptized in the name of Christ. Why the division? And as if that's not bad enough, chapter 4 hints that there may even be a faction rejecting Paul's authority, rejecting Paul's leadership entirely. Things aren't good in Corinth. The division is so bad that Paul is even concerned about the future vitality, the future survival of this local church. That's why in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he issues such a stern warning for whoever is feeding this lack of unity. Verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? All of those yous in these verses are plural. He's not talking to one individual. He's talking to the church, all of them together. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Paul is not mincing words with the people who are feeding this division within the church at Corinth. And Paul firmly believes that those people who divide this church will have to answer to God for what they're doing. The letter starts out so positive, it starts out so encouraging, but it doesn't take very long to see that all is not well at First Church of Corinth. Division is everywhere, and Paul is writing in an attempt to nip these issues in the bud before it's too late, before things get out of control. Because again, Paul loves these people too much to sit back and let them destroy themselves, to sit back and let them destroy their church, God's temple. But here's a good question to ask. 
Is division really the core problem here at Corinth? Is that really the core issue? I mean, don't get me wrong. The divisions within this church are very dangerous. But maybe the divisions aren't the real disease. Maybe the division at this church is just a symptom of the real disease. So what is the real problem? What is the real disease? What's the deeper cause of this division? We start to see it in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Remember those two words, Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are being called, being saved, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. So as Paul begins his diagnosis, he reminds the Corinthians of the core message he preached to them from the very beginning, way back from when they first met in Acts chapter 18. He reminds them of those two simple words, Christ crucified, Christ crucified. Now, Paul acknowledges that his preaching of that message, Christ crucified, the very root of the gospel itself, that message sounds ridiculous to a whole lot of people. It sounds like folly to a whole lot of people. Why would you base your life around a message so foolish, so weird, so unbelievable, and maybe even so shameful? A crucified Messiah? Why would you believe that? Well, because of verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul continues in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There it is again, Christ crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
So that message that Paul preached, Christ crucified, it certainly isn't wisdom by Corinthian standards, is it? It's not the most impressive message in the world, Christ crucified. And on top of that, Paul's not the most impressive messenger. He said in chapter one that he didn't preach words of eloquent wisdom. He says in chapter two that he didn't come with lofty speech and plausible words of wisdom. He wasn't that impressive. He wasn't anything to write home about. But his message, Christ crucified, that's the truth of the gospel. Even it appears to be folly to those in the world around him. Now, with these words about wisdom, we start to see the real problem that Paul is addressing. The root of all that division and all that strife within the church at Corinth. You see, the Corinthians and Greeks in general seem to love different ideas of wisdom. They loved the latest, greatest ideas of wisdom. We see it in Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 18, as Paul is in Athens. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also converse with Paul. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Again, not eloquent words of wisdom, not lofty speech. They call him a babbler. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and had the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time and nothing except telling or hearing something new. That's what they loved. New ideas, new opinions, new philosophies. Athens, where that event takes place, is only about 50 miles away from Corinth. Athens was the most influential city in all of the Greek world. So you better believe that the Corinthians were influenced by what was happening in Athens. If the Athenians liked sitting around and listening to new ideas of wisdom, the Corinthians would have liked it too. Now remember how we said that many of the problems plaguing the church in Corinth are also seen plaguing churches today. Well, I would suggest that we're often tempted to make the same mistake in our churches that the Corinthians are making here in this passage. How often are we tempted to cling to some form of wisdom, some exotic idea, simply because it's new? We often dive headfirst into fancy, cutting-edge interpretations of who we are and who God is and how the world works, even if those new ideas directly contradict the truth that God reveals to us in the Bible. How often are we tempted to fall for those? And on top of that, we're even more susceptible for it based on who the messenger might be. If the messenger comes with eloquent words of wisdom... Lofty speech? If the messenger is cool, impressive, charismatic, good at self-promotion, a smooth talker, then we naively accept whatever message of wisdom they might give to us without second-guessing it. And often, instead of judging the latest idea to determine if it's wisdom by God's standards, we judge it by superficial, worldly standards. We ask questions like, 
you know, will accepting this idea get me ahead in life? Does accepting this idea fit my inner desires, my preconceived notions? Will it cost me anything to hold to this idea? Because if it will cost me something, then I might not be interested. We judge wisdom by the wrong standards. But not only that, instead of judging teachers by God's standards, things like godliness, a commitment to sound doctrine, Christ crucified. Instead, we judge them by superficial, worldly standards. Does this teacher have a large following? Are they entertaining? Do they make me laugh? Will being associated with that teacher gain me credibility in the eyes of the world? Because if so, count me in, I'm on the bandwagon. The division in Corinth has come because the Christians there obsessed over false ideas of wisdom and placed their hope in imperfect human teachers instead of Christ crucified. But is wisdom all bad? Is it all bad? I mean, after all, an entire section of the Old Testament is commonly referred to as wisdom literature. Well, not all wisdom is bad, so long as it's the right kind of wisdom. Wisdom from God, not wisdom from the world. Verse 6 of chapter 2 in 1 Corinthians. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this wisdom in words not taught by human wisdom, But taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul makes it clear that God is the only source of true eternal wisdom. And God gives this wisdom to his people through the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the only way anyone can claim to have true godly wisdom or claim to teach true godly wisdom is if they have the Holy Spirit. And Paul reminds the Corinthians that God has given them this spirit. They have it. This wisdom is available to them. And what does this wisdom center around? Those two words. Christ crucified. The gospel. These Corinthians are wise enough to believe the gospel, not because they were smarter than everyone else. Not because they weighed the pros and cons better than all the other people did. 
but because God in his grace gave them his Holy Spirit. Thus, there is no room for boasting in the presence of the Lord or in the presence of men. This true, eternal, godly wisdom that God gives through his Holy Spirit, that kind of wisdom leaves no room for quarreling, no room for jealousy, no room for bitterness, no room for the divisions that we see in Corinth within the body of Christ, within the church, within God's temple. These themes of division and wisdom are also seen in the book of James. In the book of James, we read about quarreling, bitterness, jealousy within the body of Christ. And that's why James repeatedly draws them back to wisdom that comes only from God. Look at James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the weakness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. We'll see that in Corinth in the weeks ahead. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace. By those who make peace. The Corinthians problem is not division. That's a symptom. The real problem is that they've forgotten the wisdom of God. They've forgotten that Christ crucified is the core wisdom of God. Not the latest ideas from Athens from the most impressive speakers. They've forgotten that the true source of wisdom is God himself. Not some person who comes in with lofty speech. The division that's seen within the church of Corinth isn't the core problem. It's just a symptom. That's why Paul reminds them of who they are in those opening verses. Remember how he called them sanctified saints, not lacking in any spiritual gift, called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. He wasn't just saying that to butter them up or make them feel good about themselves. All those things are true. They have the Holy Spirit. The wisdom of God that doesn't lead to division is available to them. They simply must remember who they already are. People who are called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. But how do they do that? How do they remember this wisdom from God? Well, a few pointers. Number one, turn to God as the true source of wisdom rather than human teachers. And that doesn't mean that human teachers don't have a place. They do. In chapter three, Paul compares himself and other human teachers to farmers, men who plant and men who water. Planting and watering is important, but ultimately God is the one who gives the growth. Human teachers are servants of God. They are your fellow workers. And you should follow human teachers not based on how eloquent they are, how lofty their speech is, or how new their idea is, but whether or not they are teachers and preachers of Christ crucified. Later in the book, Paul tells the Corinthians to follow him as he follows Christ. The only reason he would be so audacious to say, follow me, 
is because he preaches Christ crucified. Remember God as the true source of wisdom, not human teachers. And remember that the wisdom of God revolves around Christ crucified, those two words as revealed in God's word. If someone comes to you and claims to have some new form of wisdom that doesn't jive with the core message of the gospel, the truth of God's word, with Christ crucified, then reject that wisdom. Reject that idea, no matter how flashy or innovative it may sound. And finally, I'd encourage you to pray. We mentioned the similarities between this section of 1 Corinthians and the book of James. Well, in James chapter 1, James tells his audience to ask God for wisdom, and he will freely give it to them. I pray that you would do the same. That we would be actively praying to God to develop and grow and nurture his wisdom within our hearts and within our minds through his Holy Spirit and through his word. And I pray that our church wouldn't be divided. Not because we're exactly alike in every single way, but rather that because even in our differences, we all have the mind of Christ. In those opening verses, Paul said, I hope you'll have the same mind. I want you to have the same judgment. You read that and you think, how realistic is that? For all the people in a church to have the same mind and the same judgment, is that really even possible? Well, yeah, it is. Because we all have the mind of Christ. And because we all have the Holy Spirit. And I pray that we would all be pursuing earnestly the wisdom of God. That doesn't mean that we wouldn't have problems or that we won't have problems. After all, we're just getting started with the problems in Corinth. But a good goal for us as we leave this morning is simply to remember Christ crucified. And to ask God to give us his wisdom through the Holy Spirit. And this message of Christ crucified, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the wisdom of God, that doesn't lead to division. They keep us together. Let's pray. Father, again, we're grateful for your word all the time, all of your word, Old Testament, New Testament. All of it speaks to us. But 1 Corinthians is one of those books that speaks to us so very clearly in the church today. So again, I pray that we would heed the warnings that we read, that we would get the encouragement that you want us to get out of it, that we would ultimately submit to it. Because again, it's easy to hear the word of God, easy to even memorize it or or know it, but submitting to it, that's where it can be difficult. So, Father, help us to submit to your word this morning. Father, I pray that as we leave here, we would be earnestly seeking your wisdom that you freely give us through your Holy Spirit. I pray that we would reject the wisdom of the world that doesn't match up with your wisdom as revealed in your word. And I pray that as a result of us being people who desire your wisdom and desire your spirit and center ourselves around those two words of Christ crucified. I pray that the result of that would be wonderful, God-honoring unity in this church. Not division, not quarrels, not fighting, not bitterness, not jealousy, but unity and love. We love you, 
We thank you for your son, Christ crucified. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. follower of Christ, I would encourage you to talk to one of our elders. We'll be standing at the sides of the room as we sing this last song to be happy to pray with you, happy to answer any questions that you might have, questions about our church, whatever it is that you might need to talk to them about. Take advantage of that time. Now, before we get into our time of worship, we do want to lift up one more prayer. Uh, You've heard for several months now that we're sending a group on a mission trip to Pine Haven Christian Children's Ranch. Uh, way out in the Midwest somewhere that exists. I know it exists, but, you know, I've just never been there. Uh, We're sending that group this coming Saturday. So this time next week, they will be at Pine Haven serving and doing that mission work. So we wanted to pray for those people who are going on that trip. So if you're going on that trip, go ahead, come up. You don't have to come up on stage. Just come up right down here. So if you are attending the Pine Haven trip, join us up here and we want to pray for you. Before you leave, we have a few more people who are uh, going on the trip as well. Austin trustee is going. Uh, Mary Pafford and Lily Pafford are also going, but they're not here this morning. Is that everybody? Okay. So again, as we close the service, as we uh, prepare for our last time of singing, let's pray for this group and then we'll get out of here. And we hope you have a great Sunday. Father, thank you for these people. Uh, so many of them are making sacrifices to go on this trip, whether it's uh, income or vacation days or just uh, messing up a schedule that they're not really used to messing up. Uh, thank you for these people who are serving you and serving the people at Pine Haven uh, in the week ahead. I pray they would get there safely. I pray that their work would be valuable and meaningful and helpful to the people at Pine Haven. I pray that this wouldn't just be good for the people of Pine Haven, but it would also be good for these people, uh, that you would use this trip to really grow them and shape them and mature them uh, in their walk with your son, Christ. We always hear stories about how mission trips change people's lives and they go and they weren't the same when they got back. And and Father, I pray that that would happen here with this trip, that these people would leave changed, uh, more in love with you, more loving of each other and more in love with your son, Christ. We love you. We praise you. Keep this group safe as they travel. Bring them home safely to us. We ask all these things in Christ's name.